Well, Carrie Underwood sang it several years ago about the time she needed God the most. Do you remember it? Some of you know it. Don't sing it, all right? The text goes like this. She was driving last Friday on her way to Cincinnati on a snow-white Christmas Eve. I can, I can sense it already. Some of you country fans are going, go, go ahead, get to the course. I just want to sing it. Don't do it, all right? Don't do it. You can always tell it's a country song when it says going home to see her mama and her daddy with the baby in the back seat. 50 miles to go and she was running low on faith and gasoline. I've run low on gasoline before, never right alongside with faith at the same time. It had been a long, hard year. She had a lot on her mind and she didn't pay attention. She was going way too fast. Before she knew it, she was spinning on a thin black sheet of glass She saw both their lives flash before her eyes. She didn't even have time to cry. She was so scared, she threw her hands up in the air, and she said, Jesus, take the... See, I know you know it. (laughs) Take it from my hands, because I can't do this on my own. I'm letting go. So give me one more chance to save me from this road I'm on. Jesus, take the wheel. Now, I thought, I did a little research this week, and I thought, well, surely there's a great story to that song, right? There isn't. There's no story whatsoever. One of the engineers said, yeah, one time my sister almost ran off the road, and she prayed to God. Like, really? That's the inspiration for the song? I do believe, however, that that song seems to accurately portray the way we view our need for God. It really is similar to a child who's learning to ride a bicycle. If you've done that with a young child, you know how it goes. Let go! Let go. I I can do it. I know how to do this. I know how to do it myself. Let go of me. Don't put your hand on my back. And they are okay until they crash and they scrape their leg or they break their arm. Then that's when they need mom. That's when they need dad. The fact is this. Sooner or later, almost everybody sees their need for God. I say almost everybody because there are some people that leave this planet History has recorded some of their names. They've been famous people who have left this earth defying the name of God and ceased to recognize their need for God. But most people, sooner or later, see their need for God. It's the high achiever who runs out of rungs on the ladder and then he wonders, there's got to be more than this. It's the low achiever who runs out of hope and is asking the question, is there a God and does he really care about me? It's the elderly person or the terminally ill person who's running out of time that begins to think about God. It's the young man or woman who lives for themselves. They live for the moment, doing all of the things that culture tells them that they need to do in order to be fulfilled, in order to be excited, in order to really enjoy life. And in the end, they're disappointed, they're they're broken, and often the scars of living life hard are there. And then they wonder, why am I here? Is there really a God, and if so, could he do anything with my life now that I've messed it up, that I've run my life into the ditch? Over the next several weeks, we're going to take a look at the significant events of life where we sense that we need God the most. In times of of loneliness and in times of despair, when God seems silent, when our world falls apart, When we feel the call of God to step out of our comfort zone and to do something new, whether that's a new job situation or just something totally different in our life, when our past catches up to us, those are some of the times when, humanly speaking, we think we need God the most. I got to thinking about it over the last few weeks. It's the story of the young couple who wants nothing more than to be a parent. 
They see their friends moving to this new season of life, and yet for them there is continual disappointment. They've prayed, God give us a child, and for whatever reason, it seems as if God is silent. And they wonder, does God hear us? I hope it's that he doesn't hear us, because what if he hears me and he really doesn't even care about me? Let me ask you this, just as we start this series. Have there been times in your life when God seems silent? You know what I mean, I think, at least most of you do. Times when you received news that you did not want to hear. You went into the doctor for what you thought was a routine checkup, and the doctor came in and gave you some news that you just weren't quite ready for. When the boss pulls you aside right before the end of the day or the beginning of the day and he tells you your job is going to be eliminated, you know what I mean. When you seem all alone, there's nobody there beside you and you wonder, is God there? If he is, why doesn't he say something? Why doesn't he do something? I want you to watch the story of some of our friends right here at Northwest when they went through a time when God could have seemed very silent to them. Neither one of us had ever been through a layoff before, but then Kevin's company was shutting down and he lost his job and we were kind of like, what do we do? You know, where do we go from here? And then um, along about the same time, I started noticing changes and you know, went to the doctor and it was during the Christmas season and uh, everything was took so much longer. You had to wait and wait for test results, and then you had, had more tests and more tests. The doctor didn't actually come right out and tell me. Uh, Kevin and I were sitting together in the radiologist office, and he looked at me and he said, you know what it is, don't you? And I said, it's cancer, isn't it? And he said, yes. The time after that was just kind of a blur, you know, meeting with the surgeon, and but I just, there were some certain things I remember about that time, like um, we had just been through Christmas, and I remember reading with Alexander about when the angel came to Mary and told her the news, and Mary said, may it be to me as you have said. And that's how I just kept trying to pray back to God that I don't want this to happen, but I trust you and I pray that you would help me. I had to go ahead and had the surgery, the most difficult part was several days after the surgery, I got a phone call from my surgeon and she had really devastating news for us. The surgeon told me that I had actually very advanced breast cancer. It was, I think, the most advanced stage three out of four breast cancer that I had. They removed 10 lymph nodes and nine of the 10 were taken over by cancer. So that was so grim and that was so hard and so awful and it was so unexpected. And the hardest thing for me through this all has been, you know, when I got all this devastating news was, you know, just thinking about having to leave my family, leave Kevin, leave Alexander. And at the time he was only seven years old. So I, I face this, you know, and I confront this fear every time there's another scan and I don't know, I don't know, you know, tomorrow they may find it's, it, the cancer's back and I may have a very limited time left to live. 
my mantra that I, I, I felt compelled to say over and over to myself was from Philippians 4, um, verses 6 and 7. It says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, with prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, make your requests known to God, and the peace that passes all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Being the worrying person I am, my worst fear would be, you know, what if I get cancer? What if I get cancer? Well, I did get cancer, but now I know. I mean, I know God can get me through anything, and it's no longer theoretical, you know, something that's just in my head. Now I know it, and it's truth to me, and it's through and through. I know that God will get me through anything. Debbie's here today. And I can tell you this, that uh, God has done incredible things in their family as a result of their journey, as a result of their story. And as I was able to walk with them through some of that journey, I, I know firsthand that they were there wondering, does God care? Does he know? Has he been caught by surprise? It's interesting that as you get on the other side of those things, if we could have Debbie up here today, I know that she would say that God was there. God did hear, God does care. Well, I enjoy studying the lives of Bible characters. I don't know about you, but I find it fascinating that while they lived so long ago in a different culture, in a much different world, that they struggled just like we do today. They were people just like us. In fact, the Apostle Paul said to the Corinthians, he reminded them that the things that happened in the Old Testament that happened to these people were recorded in Scripture for us that those things happen to them as examples for us. I love that. Those things happen to them and then they were recorded as an example for me and for you. It's as if God said, I'm going to record this life event of this particular person and I'm going to write it down because in the year 2012, there's going to be somebody and they're going to be going through something very similar. And I want them to see how I worked in that particular situation. I love that. I love that about God. I want you to turn with me in your Bibles if you have them, and I trust that you do. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 37. We're going to look at Genesis chapter 37 to 50. How about that? No, not really. We're going to we're going to do that at another time because there's some really interesting and great things that happen in the life of this particular Bible character, but we won't do that today. I do want to give you a quick overview of the life of Joseph, really of a particular moment in Joseph's life. And I want to show you where it must have appeared to Joseph that God was silent, just like some of us feel from time to time. Now, I know for some of you, this is a review, and for others of you, this is uh, new stuff. You're a new follower of Jesus, and, and I don't ever take that for granted, and I'm so glad that you're here. Maybe you're here exploring the claims of Christ on your life, and Bible stories and that kind of stuff is all new to you. You are welcome here. So for some of you, there's going to be a review. Some of you are going to go, cool, I never knew about that guy. I didn't know anything about his life. So follow with me for just a moment. Joseph, some of you know, was the son of Jacob and Rachel. He lived in the land of, of Canaan with ten half-brothers, one full brother and one half-sister. He was Rachel's firstborn, and he was Jacob's eleventh son. And of all the sons, the Bible records for us that Joseph was loved by his father the most. That's a problem, right? You understand that, don't you, parents? That's a problem. 
You're not supposed to love your children more than you love the other one. We do, but we're not. So, no, we don't. We don't. We, we don't really do that. Mine are starting to look at me going, do you really? Who is it? No, we really don't. You're not supposed to, but the Bible clearly records that he was loved more than the others. In fact, you'll remember uh, they had a musical on Broadway, I assume it's still playing, that Joseph was actually given a coat of many colors. None of the other brothers got that, just Joseph. Joseph loved the coat. His brothers, not so much. Jacob's favoritism toward Joseph, in fact, caused his half-brothers to hate him. And Scripture records that when Joseph was about 17 years old, that his father Jacob sent him to go and check upon his brothers. They were out taking care of the, uh, uh, the cattle, of the flocks. Kind of makes you wonder why Joseph wasn't there, you know. It's kind of like the brother who has to go out and mow the lawn and the other brother's kind of sitting inside sipping a cup of lemonade and you're going, well, what's the deal there, you know. I don't know how that goes. Here's what you need to understand. Joseph's brothers had a reason why they particularly despised him. Joseph had two dreams that made his brothers plot his demise. In the first dream, Joseph and his brother gathered bundles of grain. Then all of the grain bundles that had been prepared by the brothers gathered around Joseph's bundle, and they bowed down to it. That's a good story, isn't it? It's a great dream. Imagine at your breakfast table tomorrow if one of your children said to the other, hey, I had this dream. One day, you're going to bow down to me. How would that go at your house? Probably very similar to the way it went at Jacob's house. In the second dream, the sun, the father, the moon, the mother, and the 11 stars, the brothers, bowed down to Joseph. <laughs> now it's not just the siblings. Now it's the siblings and mom and dad. And when he told these two dreams to his brothers, they despised him for the implications that they would be bowing down to him. And they became jealous and they uh, really, I, I believe at that particular point, began to plot in their hearts how they might take the life of their brother. Pretty serious sibling rivalry, if I do say so. They were jealous of him. One day, Jacob sent Joseph out to check on his brothers who were tending to the animals. He was told that they were in Dothan, and, he, and the Scripture records that when his brothers saw him coming from a ways off, they began to talk with one another about taking his life, about, about killing him. However, the eldest brother, who you'll remember, some of you, who's named Reuben, didn't want Joseph to die, and he suggested that they just simply throw Joseph in an empty cistern until they could figure out what to do with him. You'd like to think, wouldn't your parents, that if your kids are going to plot that, that they would go for the cistern thing rather than the killing thing. And so, you know, you got to give them some credit there. Reuben intended to rescue Joseph and return him to his father. Maybe just kind of play a little bit of a joke on him and kind of get them to see we don't want any more dreams about us bowing down to you. Unaware of their intent, Joseph approaches his brothers and they turned on him and they stripped him of the coat that his father had made for him and they threw him into the cistern that Reuben had suggested. They thought about what to do with him. I'm sure there were many suggestions offered, but what they eventually decided to do was to sell him to some traders that were coming by. They really decided to sell him into slavery. The traders paid 20 pieces of silver for Joseph's. Uh, the brothers knew they were going to be responsible for their missing brother, and so if you're familiar with the text, you know that they, they put blood upon the, the coat of many colors. They took it back to Jacob and said that uh, his uh, favorite son had been killed, and here was his coat, and Jacob lived his life year after year after year thinking that his son was dead. And Joseph, however, was not dead. If you know the story, you know that he was sold to serve Potiphar, the captain of Pharaoh's guard. 
It's a very interesting text, by the way, as you go and you read Joseph's ministry there with Potiphar. God's hand was upon him. There were many good things that were happening. Joseph was promoted to oversee Potiphar's entire household as his superintendent. But after some time living right there in the home, Potiphar's wife began to notice him. Now, we can only speculate why that happened. We can speculate that he was probably a a good-looking young man, probably, if you look back at the text and start putting dates together, probably somewhere in his 20s. And my guess is that Potiphar didn't look so great. Now, Potiphar had seen better days, some of, like some of us have seen better days, right, guys? We know it. We look in the mirror. We know. We know when we look at other guys and we go, we don't look like that. Now, the good thing for me is that I look in the mirror and go, I never did. That's awesome, right? <laughs> for some of you, once upon a time, you looked like that. I never did. I never looked in the mirror and went, wow, you look good. Some of you guys did. You know what I'm talking about. I don't. Potiphar probably didn't look quite as good as Joseph, and the text records that Potiphar's wife began to notice Joseph. And one day, while he was serving there in the household, she grabbed him, grabbed him by his coat, but he escaped her and he left the coat behind. Now, there are so many lessons, and that's why I say we will come back to this text at another time, because there are so many great lessons, and we don't have time for them today. He ran out of the house, leaving his coat, angered, obviously, because she was slighted, right? I mean, she's thinking, do you know who I am? I mean, I'm 50 years old, and I'm I'm Potiphar's wife, and how dare you? She felt slighted, so Potiphar came home. She told him that Joseph had made an advance toward her. Potiphar got him and threw him into jail. And that's where we find him. In fact, if you look at uh, verse 19, Of chapter 39, the text says, Now when his master heard the words of his wife, which he spoke to him, saying, This is what your slave did to me, his anger burned. So Joseph's master took him and put him into jail, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in jail. If you were to read the text, you would find that everything seemed to be okay. He got into the jail and he became a leader of the prisoners. The prison guard put him in touch, in charge of the other people in the prison, of the other prisoners. So it seems okay, right? I mean, it seems like that's not such a bad thing. It could be worse, but look at chapter 40. Soon afterward, Pharaoh's chief cupbearer and chief baker, who had offended the Pharaoh, were thrown into prison. Wouldn't you like to have that kind of power? Wouldn't you love to go to a restaurant and your meal just wasn't quite right, and you just said, take the guy and take him to prison. He burned my steak. Something like that must have happened in the Pharaoh's household, and so he sent the cupbearer and the chief baker right to the prison. Pretty serious thing. They both have dreams, and they ask Joseph to interpret their dreams. The chief cupbearer had had held a vine in his hand with three branches that brought forth grapes, and he took them to Pharaoh, and he put them in his cup. The chief baker had three baskets of bread on his head, and they were intended for Pharaoh, but some birds came along, and they ate the bread. I don't know if you ever read a text like this and think, what did these people eat before they went to bed to dream these things, right? I mean, I have some weird dreams, but I've never dreamt anything even remotely similar to these things. Joseph then interprets their dreams. Joseph told them that within three days, the chief cupbearer would be reinstated to his position and the chief baker would be hanged. Eh, That's a good thing if you're the cupbearer, not so good if you're the baker, right? And you go, wow, I had this dream. I mean, 
I baked a loaf of bread and it got a little moldy. I mean, does that really require me to be hung? Didn't like the news. And so Joseph makes a request of the cupbearer to mention him to Pharaoh and secure his release from prison when he's released. Look at uh, verse 14 of chapter 40. Only keep me in mind when it goes well with you. And please do me a kindness by mentioning me to Pharaoh and get me out of this house. Verse 15, for I was in fact kidnapped from the land of the Hebrews, and even here I've done nothing that should have put me into this dungeon. That sounds fair, right? I mean, I gave you good news. I interpreted your dream. When you get out and you get back to the Pharaoh's house, help him understand that Potiphar put me here through no fault of my own. Verse 20, thus it came about on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, that he made a feast for all of his servants. And he lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his office, and he put the cup into the Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker, just as Joseph had interpreted to them. You can imagine Joseph walking with the cupbearer to the front door of the prison when the day came for his release. After all, he was in charge of all of the prisoners that were there. You can imagine this, and he's kind of walking beside him. He's going, don't forget, right? Don't forget when you get out of here and you get back to Pharaoh's house, don't forget that I want you to mention to him that I'm here and I, and I shouldn't be here. And Joseph would have gone back to his duties that were day after day after day, undoubtedly doing the same monotonous things, thinking, well, soon I will be released. And yet day after day after day, there was nothing. No word came from the Pharaoh to release Joseph. Day after day after day, he just continued to do the same things. Look at verse 23. I never really paid attention to this verse until this week. Look at it, chapter 40. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. See, that's, that's why when we read a text, we sometimes go through it. Some of you ask the question, why do we need to go through word by word and line by line? This is why we do this, all right? You get down to verse 23, and, and, and something is very important there. The chief cupbearer didn't remember Joseph, but forgot him. How could you do that? All you got to do is one thing. Just go to Pharaoh and say, hey, good to be back. Thanks for not hanging me like the baker. I appreciate that. Just one thing I want to mention to you. There's my friend. Yet it says he forgot him. Let me ask you this question. What is it that you expect God to do for you so that you believe that he cares for you rather than sits in silence? What is it that you expect God to do for you today? No matter where you find yourself, if you're one of those people that says, I think God is silent in my life. There's something that I continually ask him for. He knows my heart. He knows how much this situation hurts me. And I beg of him. And yet he sits in silence. What is it that you expect God to do so that you believe that he cares for you? Here's what I believe the honest answer is to that question. I believe that God should do exactly what I want him to do. Right? That's the truth, right? If I've got cancer, the thing I expect God to do is to heal me of this cancer, to do what I think is right, what I think is best. That's the honest answer to the question. I know some of us here this morning have 
grown up in church and we know all the churchy answers. I'm going to give you some biblically correct answers in a minute. We know that, but the honest answer is we want God to make it better. We want him to take away the pain, to heal the disease, to restore the marriage, to give us a job. We want him to do what we think. We want him to do what we think is best. Here's what I found to be true in my life. I like the mountaintops, don't you? Love them. In fact, I was listening to a guy preach a message this week, and he equated it like this. I like junk, jumping from peak to peak. And so he drew a, a picture just up on a whiteboard, just like this, peaks and valleys. And he talked about how I love just jumping from peak to peak to peak. And I look down and I see the valley and it's kind of like Super Mario, right? I think I can make it and I just jump to the other peak. That's what I like. I don't like living in the valleys. I don't like going through those difficult times. In fact, I tend to resist them as much as possible. And yet here's what I found out to be true in my life. It is those times when my faith has been forged. Those times when I went through the valley. God hasn't really done a lot of forging of my faith when I've been on the mountaintops and things have been going just like I want them to go. He's forged my faith in the valleys. That's the time when God molds us and he, and he shapes us into the men and women that he wants us to be. In fact, uh, the Bible character Job, he felt sometimes just like we felt. In fact, he wrote in Job chapter 23, Behold, I go forward, but he's not there. And backward, but I cannot perceive him. When he acts on the left, I can't behold him. He turns to the right, I cannot see him. Here's the conclusion that Job came to. But he knows the way I take. And when he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. What an incredible text. From a man who knew what it meant to go through tragedy, who knew what it meant to sense the silence of God in his life. You see, sometimes God redeems us from our struggles, and other times he redeems us through our struggles. Did you get that? That's probably worth writing down. And not because I said it, because I'm sure somebody else said it. But it's probably worth writing down. Sometimes God redeems us from our struggles. Other times God redeems us through our struggles when we go through those valleys, not simply from mountain peak to mountain peak. And so after Joseph was in prison for more than two years, Pharaoh had two dreams which disturbed him. And he dreamt of seven lean cows which rose out of the river and devoured seven fat cows. Really strange dream there, right? I mean, I get the whole fat cows devouring the lean cows, but I don't get the whole other thing going on there. And he dreamed of seven withered ears of grain devouring seven fat ears of grain. And Pharaoh's wise men were unable to interpret these dreams, but the chief cupbearer remembered Joseph and he spoke of his skill to the Pharaoh. <laughs> don't you love that? Verse 23, I forget about him. You're dead to me. All of a sudden he goes, I remember what happened to the baker. I don't want to be hung. Wait a second, there's this guy. I remember this guy when I had a dream. And so he tells Pharaoh that there's this guy and Joseph was called for and he interpreted the dream as foretelling that seven years of abundance would be followed by seven years of famine. He advised Pharaoh to store up the surplus grain during those years of abundance. And think about it. 
For two years, God appeared to be silent to Joseph. There appeared to be silence. Don't you think that probably, wouldn't you love to read Joseph's diary? Don't you think there were probably times when he wrote, God, where are you? God, do you know that I'm here? God, do you know that I'm in this stick? Do you know how talented I am? And here I am with these people. Look at these people. They've committed heinous crimes. Here am I. Do you know? I can see it in his diary. Wish I could order that from Amazon. Couldn't you? Do you understand? For two years, he must have made those entries in his journal. Two years, undoubtedly, where he must have wondered, did God care? Did God hear his prayer? Was God really there? Did he really have a purpose for him being on this planet? Look at verse 38. Then Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this, in whom is a divine spirit? So Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has informed you of all this, there is no one so discerning and wise as you are. He's come a long ways in a short time, hasn't he? Cooped up in a prison, and then all of a sudden, you're the wisest man in the land. Verse 40, you shall be over my house, and according to your command, all my people shall do homage. Only in the throne I will be greater than you. In other words, you're like the second in command. Joseph must have been going, is there a dream here? Do I need to interpret my own dream? Is this this really happening to me? Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took off his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand, and he clothed him in garments of fine linen and put the gold necklace around his neck. He had him ride in the second chariot, and they proclaimed before him, Bow the knee, and he set him over all the land of Egypt. That is an incredible thing. You just have to sit back if you believe Scripture to be true, which, by the way, the historical record verifies this to be truth. You have to look back and you have to say, wow, God did have a plan. God did know what was best. While he might have been silent for two years, God was also at work. He was doing something that was pretty incredible. Let me give you three things to remember when God seems silent. Three things to remember. Number one, sometimes he seems silent because we're spiritually deaf. Sometimes he seems silent because we are spiritually deaf. See, a lot of times we're like, Carrie Underwood, Jesus, take the wheel, right? I'm cruising along, got the baby in the back seat, everything's going fine until we hit the patch of ice. Then we say, Jesus, take the wheel. That's what we're like a lot of times. I don't need you, little kid on the bicycle, get away from me, I'm okay, but all of a sudden when I get down, when I fall down, when I break my leg, when I scrape my knee, when something bad happens, God, where are you? I need you here. See, sometimes he seems silent because we are spiritually deaf. We don't hear him because our hearts are not bent towards him. Sometimes I would say to you this morning, God is not silent. You can't hear him because you are spiritually deaf. You don't walk with God. And while our world tells us 
While our government officials tell us during times of national tragedy, just simply call upon God. God is not a genie in a bottle. We are to enjoy a personal, saving relationship with Jesus, first of all, which gives us intimacy through his son, Jesus, and we enjoy fellowship with him. We don't just simply call on the genie of the bottle in our time of need as we're sliding off of the road. High school kids, as we're sitting in class, taking a test we haven't studied for, and we pray, God, take the wheel! Take the pencil. Direct it for me. That's not what God is. In fact, the psalmist said it this way. If I regard wickedness in my heart, if I ignore wickedness in my heart, God doesn't hear me. I didn't say that. God said that. See, sometimes he seems silent because we're spiritually deaf. Number two, he may seem silent, but he's always there. That's what I know to be true. I know that to be true in my life. When I have not gone from peak to peak to peak, but I've spent time in the valley, sometimes it appears that he's not there. And then I come out of the fog. I come out of the storm and realize that he's been right beside me the whole time. The psalmist asked the question, where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you're there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. And the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. I think the psalmist has it covered, right? The idea is that God is always there in the midst of the darkness, in the midst of the fog, in the midst of the storm, he is there. Psalm 34, 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. God may seem silent, but he's always there. And then number three, and I think probably the most important for us to understand, it's the hardest statement for our human minds to comprehend, but it is absolute truth. God does what he does for his glory and our good in his time. If you've been around Northwest for any length of time, you have heard me multiple times make that statement. God is a loving Heavenly Father. He wants to give us only those things which are good for us, but He does so for our good and for His glory. That's what we were created for. Isaiah 43, 7, everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. He made us, he made you for his glory. It isn't about you. I know it's popular for it to be about you. We just went through Christmas season and every store said it was about us. How can they make us happy? Online retailer, brick-and-mortar store. What can they do for us? Because it's all about me. Every restaurant that you go into says, it's all about you, sir. They sit you down. They bring you whatever you want. They, it's all about you. And if we're not careful, we live in a world as Christ followers where we really buy into the idea that it's all about us. It's about us. It's about our satisfaction. It's about our pleasure. 
And yet God says, no, I do what I do for my glory and for your good. And remember this, I do it in my time, not yours. Here's the truth of the matter. Our greatest need for God is not when we're physically sick. It's not when we lose our job. It's not when tragedy comes into our family. It's not when we don't know which way to go. The time we need God the most is when we recognize that we are separated from him because of our sin. That's the time we need God the most. If you're here this morning and you're still trusting in yourself, hoping one day that you will be good enough to somehow attain God's favor and enter into heaven, you are going to one day be eternally disappointed, my friend. I rode with a guy in the car just this week. He was taking me home after me leaving my car to get it fixed, and we got in a conversation, and he opened the door. I didn't. I didn't even have to shove it open. I mean, he just opened the door, and I'm thinking, buddy, you don't know what you've just done. You have no idea who you're sitting here with. And I asked him, what are you trusting in? You talk about one day just wanting to finish. He said, I want to finish well. What, what does that mean to you? It was all about doing enough good things so that hopefully one day God might say to him, come on in, you've been a good boy. And then I had to break the bad news to him that that's not how it works. I said, do you know what the Bible said? He said, no, nobody's ever told me that. I invited him to go to Summit. He lives in Durham. I invited him to go to Summit. I hope he's there today. Our greatest need is a Savior because we're not good on our own. You can't possibly do enough good. Your greatest need is not when you find out you have cancer, when there's some tragedy in your life, when you lose your job. Your greatest need is a Savior. And I want to remind you right at the beginning of this series that God is constantly there. Never leaves us. Never forsakes us. Not for a moment. In the darkest night, in the most ferocious storms of our life, when we can't even see our hand in front of our face, he is the sovereign one, the one who works all things for his good, for his glory, in his time. You see, God often speaks the loudest and the most definitively through his silence what I found to be true in my life. Deuteronomy 31.6, be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid or tremble at them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. He will never fail you. He will never forsake you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. I said at the beginning, and I'll say it again, God, I am so incredibly amazed that a book that's so old can be so relevant to our lives today. God, I recognize that there are people that are in this auditorium this morning, and they would cry out even right now, God, I need you. God, help us to understand that we don't need you under our terms. We simply need you on the terms of the gospel. God, I pray for the one that's here this morning that has never crossed the line of faith. They never have placed their trust in Christ alone as their Savior because for them, that is what they need the most today. And God, I pray for that one who just this week got a report from the doctor that wasn't good. God, I pray that they sense that you're not silent, that you are there beside them, that you have a purpose and a plan and it is for your glory. For that man or that woman that found out this week that they've lost their job or 
Worse yet, they've been going for weeks, if not months, without a job. God, help them to sense your presence today. That you're a good God, that you have a purpose and a plan for our lives. That you do, as you recorded in the book of Romans for us, you do work all things together for our good, for your glory. God, we pray that you do that through our lives. Don't cause us just to be people that jump from peak to peak. But God, as we spend time in the valleys, I pray that you will forge our faith. Cause us to be men and women who are committed to the cause of Jesus Christ. Because we've identified with you through suffering. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.